be open to new ways of thinking and understanding. You can learn more about my work and sign up to join us for a live recording at ally.cc. Let's get started. Thank you, Melinda, and everyone that's here. Before I even start, I'm going to introduce myself. My name is Paula Quintana. I've been at High Alpha Innovation for almost a year. I'm a senior analyst here, and I'm on the business design team. So I'm particularly very interested in talking to you, Melinda. So thank you so much for being here. And just to get started, can you please introduce yourself and mention anything about your life background that you'd like to share with us? Sure. So I am the founder and CEO of Change Catalyst. I'm also the author of How to Be an Ally, um, which is a, a book um, that was released from McGraw-Hill recently. And I will say a bit about my background, maybe that might be helpful. So I, I was a documentary filmmaker for a number of years, for 10 years. And and then uh, my whole life, I've been kind of focused on social impact and social change, environmental change. And, and so uh, from documentary filmmaking, I moved into working with startups and Fortune 500 companies that had social impact campaigns. I worked with mission-driven brands to really drive social impact and environmental impact using storytelling, behavior change, behavior science strategies, and change management strategies, and eventually became an executive. I was working at an engineering firm in San Francisco and working with healthcare systems, the nation's largest healthcare systems, to reduce their energy and their waste and their water use and to improve their social impact. And was creating real positive change in the world, was proud of my work, and it became the worst professional experience of my life. There were little things that happened daily that impacted me and that impacted my ability to really to thrive, to lead, to be creative and innovative. So it took me a while to kind of realize what was happening. I was the only woman on a, on a leadership team of 19. It was a culture that just wasn't created for me and people didn't make space for me in that culture. So I was little behaviors and patterns every day that made me feel belittled, disrespected, unheard, othered, like I didn't belong. The biases and microaggressions. So biases, I think we all know what that is. Microaggressions are kind of how biases show up in our words and actions, little things that that people say and do that can make you feel disrespected, little slights and insults every day. They add up over time. Um, Megan Smith, the former White House CTO, calls it death from a thousand paper cuts. It's the little things every day. And so once I kind of realized that was happening, I, and I started to realize that it wasn't me, that it was the culture around me that was kind of failing me, that, that I started to work to create change in that company. And then eventually left because I wanted to create change, not just in that company, but across the tech industry. So I left my job as an executive to start Change Catalyst to really address diversity, equity, and inclusion across the tech industry. I co-founded it with my uh, then boyfriend, now husband, Wayne Sutton, and we've been working for nine years on driving diversity, equity, and inclusion. We started in the tech industry and have expanded beyond the tech industry as well, working with startups and investors and um, larger companies as well. Thank you, Melinda. It's great to hear. But let's get started, Melinda. So can you tell us a bit more about why you decided to write How to Be an Ally? And just basic, what it means to be an ally at the workplace? We had been working on diversity, equity, and inclusion for a while and can realize that a lot of companies and startups were just one person was working on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And 
whether that's somebody that just really had a passion for it or that was a small DEI committee with slightly larger startups. They, a lot of times people create a DEI committee to address it or occasionally a CEO of a startup would be interested in it and want to kind of push it forward. But we started to realize, well, it's not possible to create change across our cultures if just one person is working on it. It really takes all of us working together. We all have biases. We all create our culture. We all are part of our culture. We are a part of our systems and processes, which are inequitable and, and can perpetuate exclusion. And so really, it is not until we reach that critical mass of allies across our industry, across our companies, that we will fundamentally shift and create change for and really develop more diverse, equitable, and inclusive startups and companies. And, and so that is each of us looking within and understanding that we all do have some biases that we need to correct and making sure that we're not unintentionally harming each other with our words and actions. And, and then ways that we can recognize that there's an imbalance and opportunity in, our, in life. There's historical privilege and, and oppression that still seeps into our systems and processes. And the startup ecosystem is a great example, actually, where only 2% of all investment capital goes to anybody but a white man, right? And so that's women, that's people of color, that's, that's anybody else. So it's an inequitable system and, and there's, there are biases within it, just as an example, the workplace systems as well. And so each of us recognizing that there is that imbalance and opportunity and working to change it is how we really fundamentally shift. And so that's allyship. It's recognizing that there's an imbalance and opportunity that is recognizing that people experience marginalization and working to change it, using your power, your influence to change it. We all have power and influence. And so it's, um, if I were to say, you know, what is allyship in one, one sentence, it's empathy in action. So it's really learning about each other, learning about our unique experiences, building empathy and showing empathy for one another, and then taking action and support. This makes me remember when I started to think in my journey in allyship and diversity, equity, and inclusion that switch of like, at the beginning, I was just thinking of the workplace, like, oh, what can the CEO do? What can leadership do? What initiative should I do? But then there was a switch of, wait a minute, I need to look at myself. Like, where are my biases? Like, what am I doing? Like, I'm focusing all of the time, pointing fingers, which I'm not saying that that's not important. I'm saying that that should also be done in conjunction with hey, what are my own biases? What am I doing? How are my attitudes changing culture? So yeah, I'm, I'm excited then about that. some of the next questions. <laughs> mm. um, so I want to start then somewhat broad. So I started my journey and I started talking to other people, friends or even colleagues. I've realized that people are afraid. They're afraid of talking about DI or allyship. They're afraid of making a mistake basically or of saying something wrong. And that, that people are going to think that they're not sensitive, that they're not aware of what's happening, or even worse, racist or sexist or ableist. So Melinda, what piece of advice would you recommend or what resources would you recommend to someone that has little knowledge about DI or allyship and wants to get started? Yeah, at Change Fellows, we've done a bunch of research on allyship and found that there are biggest challenges are often to being an ally or often the lack of skills or confidence to be an effective ally. And, and so recognize what those challenges are for you. That would be my first is what's holding you back. What is that fear? What is it go beyond I'm afraid or, or maybe even just 
sometimes people say they don't have time to be an ally, right? Go past that, make time and really investigate if you don't know how to learn, (laughs) right? Do some reading. My book is a great example. And there are lots of other resources out there as well. And really, really work through your challenges and go past the fear. Fear is often discomfort. When we're talking about this work, it's often deep down about discomfort. And yeah, it can be uncomfortable. Many of us were taught not to talk about race when we were growing up. And so we have to get past that. Um, and many of us were, you know, brought up to not talk about sexual orientation or, or other experiences that people have. So recognize that in yourself and move through it, move past it. And often allyship starts by learning and unlearning and relearning. And we learn about each other. We learn about our unique experiences. We learn about historical experiences that people have had. We learn about people's cultures and identities. And sometimes we have to unlearn too. We pick up biases throughout our lives from the beginning of our lives. And, you know, we pick them up from our friends, our families, our media is a, <laughs> is a great perpetuator of biases and, and media intense media and films, video games. That's an inequitable system as well. So there are not a lot of diverse underrepresented creators that rise to the, the top too. So really important to kind of expand who you're learning from, who, how are you learning about each other? When you're sitting down to watch a movie or a TV show, think about the diverse, you know, who is creating those shows and expand, really go beyond to learn and grow and unlearn and relearn from different perspectives. And then the next step is to take action. And it's really, we often see this as this big overwhelming thing, diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's a lot to work on. Systemic inequity is a lot to work on, but it's really taking one action at a time. So just take one action at a time. And then the next one, and then the next one. I really like that. I remember feeling overwhelmed. Like there are so many different things that I could do and I don't know where to start. And this is so much. And to be honest, I'm just doing one thing at a time. I don't know if that's the best path. I don't think there is a best path. There are different paths. So I'm just taking step by step. (laughs) So I really like that, Melinda. Next question, I want to tie it to early stage startups, some more at the workplace. So similar, I've heard from founders or employees at early stage startups that they're too small to start thinking about DEI or allyship, that they're going to wait until they have a critical mass when it's more important. So what are your thoughts about that? And what would you say to someone that that says that or that you hear saying that? Yeah, I have several thoughts about that. <laughs> One is that it doesn't. it's not going to get easier if you wait longer, right? It's easier to do it when you're a small startup. It's easier to change the culture or to create a culture that is inclusive from the start. It's easier to hire diverse, underrepresented people from the beginning than to wait until you have a bigger team that all look pretty similar. It's much harder to uh, hire somebody who's from an underrepresented background if your whole team doesn't look like them, right? And it's better for business. You want a team that is representative of your customers. And uh, they want to create products that don't unintentionally exclude people, that don't unintentionally perpetuate inequities. And we take a big risk if we don't um, develop a diverse team from the beginning, create products. We, that's a big risk that you take. And so bring a diverse team together from the beginning to design and create an innovative product that's really going to work for the customers and, and the, the users that you are designing for. 
And then the other piece is that one of the, you know, I talked a little bit about the inequities in the startup ecosystem. When you look at startup equity, when you look at compensation across the startup ecosystem, it's extremely inequitable. Women and people of color, they have less equity in startups. And that is largely, there are two things happening. One is that there are biases in the compensation process, and we tend to give people more equity based on how we see and experience them. There are biases in that, right? And then the other piece is that women and people of color tend to come in to startups later. And so they have less equity in the company as a result of that. So you're, you're perpetuating that inequity in systems as well. Do you think the easiest way to start is to start in group discussions with a theme to get beyond fear? It's a good way to start. And I would say that um, everybody learns differently. And, and so for some people, those conversations are, are really important and helpful in their learning process and in, in the process of creating change. For other people, it, some people don't want to have those conversations as, as they start out being an ally. And so we found actually that White men tend to not want to have those uncomfortable conversations when they first start out as an ally. They want to learn from resources, learn from training, and learn kind of on their own and kind of start the process first before they have those conversations. So if you are starting to work on this as a team culture, know that it's important to give people different opportunities to learn. Sometimes it's conversations, sometimes it's learning from outside resources and articles or Or training, a group training is a great way to start bringing somebody um, to so that you all have that same foundational language and understanding and can start to work together. I would highly recommend that if you can. Sometimes startups will, you know, if you're early stage startup and you just have a few people on your team, you might go to some LinkedIn learning, for example, and just everybody watches a video and then you talk about it afterwards and, and you start to put things into practice from the video together. Yeah, and I definitely agree with that. I remember there were certain topics where it also depends on the level of confidence, right? Like if I'm only talking to Christy, which I'm super <laughs> open, I would be willing to be like, oh, I said something wrong, but like, I know Christy knows me. But in a big group, I'm like, oh, I don't want to say a lot of things wrong. So maybe I'm going to read a lot more before. So yeah, it definitely depends who you're talking to, who you are. Like maybe I'm more outspoken sometimes, maybe I'm not. So yeah, you can definitely tell how it's, Depends on your your personality. Yeah, and it also it's much easier to work all together on this. It's easier like if you if you're starting to interrupt biases or microaggressions, it's easier for your whole team to be doing that together. You know, mm-hmm. maybe you pick one or two microaggressions to start working on, and maybe that's interrupting each other. So everybody is working on not interrupting each other. And when you do that together, it's a whole lot easier than individuals starting trying to do that. And you can create a culture where you're you're calling each other in to learn rather than calling people out. So there's a distinction between calling people out and calling people in. When you call somebody out for exclusion or um, for microaggression, then you might end up shaming them. Mm -hmm. And shame is one of the worst motivators for change. So we want to work hard not to to shame people, but to call people in to learn and let them know, hey, you know what? Um, You said this the other day, and I wanted to just share that that can be harmful for this reason. And really call people in to learn about that. Mm-hmm. And I think you alluded to a question that I was going to ask later, but I'm going to ask it right now because mm-hmm. I think it's irrelevant. So let's say I'm in this journey and I just said, I make a comment that I realized I made a mistake. Something came out the way I didn't intend it to come out. 
that was definitely not what I intended to do, but it's a microaggression. I know it is. So in that case, Melinda, what advice would you give me to handle that situation? Recognize your mistake, have empathy for yourself and apologize. Apologize to anybody that you might've harmed and, and then correct your mistake and, and keep going. You know, it's a learning process. Everybody's going to make mistakes at one point or another. We all make mistakes at, at, from time to time. And it's really recognizing it, apologizing it, correcting, making that correction, and then moving forward. And with that, do you think it also depends on each person? Like, let's say we're in a group, a big group, and I make a mistake. I, I It's a microaggression in some big group. Mm-hmm. And perhaps I, I didn't say anything then. So, I mean, I will apologize with the person. Should I wait until the group is all together? Does it depend? I don't. Well, is there a strategy that you recommend, or does it really just depend on the circumstance? It's true. It definitely depends on the circumstance. And then I would say that if you harm somebody, it's your your responsibility to apologize and correct that mistake and correct any impact from that mm-hmm. mistake with that person. And especially if you're a leader, it's really important to publicly apologize and and say how you're going to do better. So, you know, I made a mistake the other day. Here's what I did. And here's what I'm going to do differently next time. And that modeling as a leader, so important when you're working to create a a more inclusive culture, you're really showing that you're on a learning journey, that you care about this. You're inviting other people also to do the same, Mm -hmm. to be on this learning journey with you. And as a leader, you might even let your team know that you're working on this, that you're working on, maybe it's you're working on one or two biases or microaggressions. You let your team know that you're working on it and invite them to call you in if they see you do or say that thing. And that that starts to create a culture where it's okay to do that, where it's safe to do that, where it's normal to do that. It makes a huge difference in driving more inclusive and equitable culture. Great. Okay. The next question I had for you was, um, I know we've talked about actual, let's say, items or action items. And I remember reading your book and a part that you said that humanizing and empathizing are keys to reducing our own biases. So can you tell us a bit more about that? What does that mean and how can we practice that? Yeah, I mean, we often, especially working on a startup, often the work can be very transactional. That we we want to get to the the next deadline. Um, we do just want to launch, do this product launch, and and so everybody is working toward that. And we forget to stop and listen to each other and really show empathy for one another and remind remember that we all have things happening in our lives that might be affecting us. And we do need to consistently, even when we're working toward a project deadline, maybe even especially when we're working toward a project deadline, is have empathy for one another and. You know, notice when things are happening in our lives. Notice when somebody is going through something and check in with them. So in that way, making sure that we're empathizing with people. And also when we're first meeting people or even when we've been working with them for a long time, often we look for what we have in common. That's often how we build relationships with one another, especially from the beginning. But when we're building a diverse team, sometimes we don't initially see what we have in common. And the neuroscience of that is that we don't, we tend to build trust with people who are like us, that where we see and experience similarities, and we tend to distrust people that we, that who are less like us. Um, so really, really work to value 
what is distinct and unique about each of us and our own experiences and trust those experiences as well. Trust each other beyond that initial kind of finding similarities. We want to find differences and value those differences too. And I think to add something that you said, it's not even my words, but it's in your book. I remember one part was like, like, how about like our own social media? Mm. Who are you following? Are you following right. everyone that is from your same race? Are you following only men or only people that identify as women or as men? And I think that really made a click for me too of like, I had never thought of that. Then again, this idea of like, how are my own biases, my own day-to-day affect in my work? And I think now I'm starting to ask those questions, like the information that I'm consuming every day. Is it coming only from one specific type of person? Like, is it only a white male that's writing the content that I read every day? Who are the people that I'm following on social media? And hey, maybe I have to be more aware of learning about, as you said, people that are different from me and how is it going to help me? So I think that that has really helped me realize I have to be more aware of that and that directly impacts my work. Because that is just checking my own biases, right? My own, the own stories that I've been taught that whole life. So yeah, I just remember that. And that's how you practice empathy, learning from others. But it has definitely been an intentional effort. Like I've had to think about it, have to go out of my ways. Like, who am I following on and like on my Instagram, which I've never thought. That's great. I remember reading, I'm like, that is a Really good point, Melinda. <laughs> awesome. And, and and also I would encourage you to think about your networks to your own friends as well. 70% mm-hmm. of white people have only white friends and right. I mean, that's just that's statistics and and that's the data. And so as a result, you're learning from some people and not learning about others. And so you want to expand, you know, learn about people on social media. That's a great, great way to kind of expand your understanding and build empathy for people who are less like you. This made me remember one another thing, Melinda, on your book of how we talk a lot about like microaggressions, which of course is important that we know what it is. But I remember you mentioned what microaffirmations and micro interventions in your book. And I I really like that idea and I've been implementing some of that, but I wanted to spend then some time here talking about it. So can you tell us what those are? What are microaffirmations? What are microinterventions and how can we put them into action? So this is like two different chapters in my book. So it's a lot, <laughs> a lot, a lot to distill into an answer. But I, so microinterventions are ways that we can stand up for what's right and intervene when we see a microaggression happen. Um, it's really important because there's a lot of harm that can be caused by continued microaggressions in particular, but even that one microaggression, if somebody is not allowed to speak or, you know, their voice is silenced, that can impact their whole career, right? That that can impact how they belong. If feel like they belong in the moment and if they don't aren't able to voice their ideas, you might miss their ideas when you're developing a product and they are not able to kind of advance their own career by being recognized for those ideas and, and allowing uh, being allowed to champion those ideas and take them and run with them. So microaggressions also, they can impact us in the short term and also in the long term, physically and mentally as well. Research shows that repeated microaggressions over time can impact people behaviorally, cognitively, and mentally as well. And we can even pass on our 
trauma from microaggressions within fetal cells from generation to generation. It's amazing that that trauma can be passed on physically through our fetal cells and also through our words and actions as well. And so it's really important to address them. So we want to intervene. And there are easier microaggressions to intervene and and maybe more difficult, more um, uncomfortable ones. So I can just address a couple of the easy ones here to get you started. But interruption. So people with underrepresented identities are more likely to be interrupted. When that happens regularly, again, you're you're silencing people. And so you want to interrupt interruptions. And it's simple. <laughs> really, it's just making space in the in the conversation. You know, I, I don't think Paula was finished with her thought. I'd love to hear the rest of Paula's thought, you know, opening the space. Often when you're working on a team, a couple of people, two or three people will dominate a conversation as well. They're kind of taking up more than their share of airtime inequitable airtime. And so make the space in a conversation for that as well. You know, I I can see that Lisa has been trying to say something for a long time, and I would love to make space for her to share her thoughts. Also echo and attribute. So often somebody with an underrepresented identity will have an idea that's dismissed by the team. And then somebody else has the same idea a few minutes later, and they're, they're a champion. And it's generally somebody from the dominant population. And and as a result, somebody else will have share that same idea and they'll be championed, right? So you want to echo and attribute, you want to make sure that that original person was uh, recognized for their idea and they are allowed to champion that idea. So, you know, I, I heard Christy say that the other day and I thought it was a great idea and I would love to hear more about Christy's thoughts there, right? So you're, you're echoing and attributing that idea back to Christy in that case. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of racist, sexist, ableist, heteronormative microaggressions. And I encourage you to look in my book to learn more about those. Those are, These are just like a few quick and easy interventions. And then microaffirmations are little ways that we can counter the impact of microaggression. So when somebody is told repeatedly that they're not good enough, when their exper- expertise and experience is regularly questioned, when they're belittled, you can sometimes internalize that Right? You can internalize that what people are saying to you and what you're experiencing. And it can come out, it can show up as imposter syndrome, that feeling that you're not good enough despite all of your skills and expertise. That people might buy me out because I'm, a, I'm an imposter. Right? You have that, that fear of people questioning you because people have questioned you. right? And so you're internalizing that and you might lose confidence. You might recede a bit as well. And so as an ally, you can help build somebody's confidence. And that could be non-verbally, like several of you are clearly present right here, right now, and nodding and um, showing your interest. That makes a big difference for for somebody. So the non-verbal cues that we give each other can help build our confidence in that moment. And then we can, you know, if, if somebody is nervous, if they're nervous stepping into a new opportunity, nervous about speaking, you know, Remind them that they're the expert that they are. You know, I've seen you do this before. You're amazing. And I, you're the, nobody else knows this better than you, right? Little ways that you can recognize people's expertise, recognize um, their skills. And you can also acknowledge their skills publicly to acknowledge their skills on the team too, to make sure that, that everybody is recognizing their expertise. Give people a chance, trust them is another one. What we found in our research is that the top two ways that people tend to want their allies to show up for them is 
build their confidence or courage and trust them. So because people with underrepresented identities tend to be distrusted, right? We talked about trust a little bit. So how are you showing that you're, you're trusting people, whether that is trusting them to lead a meeting for the first time, trusting them to lead a project or hire them, you know, taking a chance on them by hiring them, knowing that we tend to make decisions around trust. And, and that includes hiring based on people who are more like us recognize that and also trust people who are less like you. And then when you do that, make sure you're supporting them so that they can't succeed and thrive as well. Thank you so much. That was awesome. I know that that was a lot of content that I asked you to go through. (laughs) I just wanted to make sure that we touch upon that because that was great. Can you give us some examples, even if it's our larger startups or companies of how DI and allyship can be better integrated with the DNA of an organization? Other than what I shared, I think it has to come from the top and it has to come from the leadership team, not just in terms of making it a priority. That's one is making it a priority for the team. That means not just saying that it's a priority, but embedding it into your accountability. You know, if your priority is to build a diverse team, one is what are your goals around that? The second is, how are you helping people to learn more about how to do that effectively? You know, our hiring processes in tech and the startup ecosystem in general, are, they're inequitable. They're, they're not inclusive generally. And so that means we actually have to design them differently. So how are you designing that differently? How are you supporting your team to do that differently? It's saying that you want a diverse team is, is not going to change things. You have to actually work on it. Yeah, what is my hiring process? How are we unintentionally leaving out underrepresented candidates? And how do we design that differently? This is an example. If you're working on equity, look at um, your compensation equity, making sure that everybody is um, equitably receiving compensation, you know, whether that's pay or that's equity, uh, right? Or that is um, looking at promotion. How are you developing a promotion process that is going to be inclusive that is not going to perpetuate inequity. So often people with underrepresented identities, people of color, people with disabilities, women tend to be promoted less frequently, less often, less frequently. And as a result, there's inequity in promotion as well. And and that that ends up, you know, changing your leadership team. And so you making sure that you are building in accountability systems, looking at that from the beginning building that into how you're thinking about the promotion process. How are you thinking about reviews and making sure that people receive the quality feedback that they need in order to grow? Again, women are, tend to receive less quality feedback from their managers. The statistics show that. And so knowing that, how are you developing a feedback cycle to counter that, to make sure that your, your, your leaders are providing that quality feedback for everyone that needs it? So it comes from leadership and it's really important to not just show as as a priority, but develop goals around it, develop accountability around it, work on it as the leader. You know, we all have opportunities for growth, right? And so how are you regularly working on that together? And then how are you teaching a team to do that as well? Okay. Now we have like 15 more minutes um, and I've said we were going to go to questions from the audience, but I do want to open it up. Is there any questions that we that anyone wants to ask, even if it's not related to anything we've said? 
Lisa, yeah, yeah. you have a question. <laughs> so I spent a bunch of time in Tulsa where, you know, they're, we're trying to rebuild Black Wall Street. And I, I found it fascinating to be part of a discussion where a number of people that came in for this one meeting were in many cases younger, in many cases um, not Black. And there seemed to be a fear of asking too many questions. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't want to act like I don't know what Juneteenth is. I don't want to act like I don't know what, you know, name the holiday is. And I, you know, I know if I remember right in the book, you said something about, you know, not going to like your single black person that you know and asking, you know, them to attribute all of their knowledge uh, Mm -hmm. to you. So how do you suggest that one navigates that. Yeah. my uh, Just a rule of thumb is if you can Google it, you don't need to ask somebody to share, right? If you can Google it, Google it. Find reputable sources. If you're learning about Juneteenth, make sure you're going to a place, you know, an article that is written by a Black person or a resource that is written by an activist organization to really get, um, you know, the History Channel some biases, right? And often those come up to the top. Wikipedia, also some biases. There's a, they have been notoriously working on, um, on a lack of inclusion and a lack of diversity in their writers too. So we need to be aware of that, that, you know, we often look at Wikipedia as a resource, but there's some major issues there too. So if you can Google it, Google it. And then the other thing I would say is that some people are more open to educating you than others and recognize that people are already marginalized. They're already experiencing exclusion. And, and so that is work, extra work on top of their daily work. And so when you're asking them uh, to educate you, that's additional burden as well. And so, or additional work as well, I should say, some people are going to be more open to it than others. So you just ask like, Hey, I have a question. Do you mind if I ask this? And sometimes they might say, I do mind. I don't want to go there. You go find out on your own and you, you're, you do that. And other times people are open to it. So um, rather than making an assumption that people aren't open to um, sharing their experience, you, you can ask and ask if they're willing to. And if they say no, go elsewhere. So in a, a previous life, I feel like I became the um, social media and PR police relative to equity and inclusion, meaning constantly pointing out that absolutely everything that we shared was not, didn't look very much like inclusion or sound very much like inclusion. And I feel like it took like four years for it to Mm -hmm. catch on. I guess my question for you is, was that stupid? I mean, does anyone really notice or not? I mean, I do, but do others? Do people realize things like that are important? And if I'm looking to go to work for an organization, do I look at their social media content? Do I look at all their LinkedIn stuff, et cetera? Your thoughts? Well, to answer the last question first, yes. If you care about being on a diverse, equitable, and inclusive team, you can tell by their website, by their social media, if they actually prioritize that. And you can tell by looking at the team page if they <laughs> prioritize that. And I would say that, you know, some companies are working on it and they're they're not doing such a great job with their messaging. So if you, uh, you know, in your first interview with them, ask them, you know, what are you doing around diversity, equity, and inclusion? 
and ask them, you know, rather than if somebody says, well, we're prioritizing that, then the next step, how are you prioritizing that? What does that look like? And if they don't have a good answer, it's probably, you know, it's probably at the surface level, it's probably kind of performative rather than systemic. (laughs) So, and then in terms of being the one person regularly calling people in to learn, right? It does get old. It gets hard. It gets toxic. And so the first is to take care of yourself on that journey because that is you're you're taking on some of the toxicity and and it can start to live in your body. It can start to live in your thoughts as well. So making sure you're taking care of yourself, you know, get a good therapist and also, you know, work that through. I, I do this work regularly. And so I actually have to do yoga to kind of uh, work it through my body and through my mind. And um, there are uh, exercises as well and really take care of your your own body. So it's not living in there because it, it does. That's the studies show that it does. And um trauma that we experience can turn into trauma in our physical beings. And then this is the second I would say is if you can work with more than one person, you know, expand your team that is working on this. And um, as much as you can, um, the more that you work together, uh, you know, when the, when Obama first became president, the, he hired more women than had ever been hired before it still obviously had work to do. And at the same time, the women started to realize that they were experiencing microaggressions regularly. They were, you know, being interrupted. They their ideas were not heard. And then other people would champion those same ideas and be championed for it. And and so they they started talking with each other and they started working together, echoing and attributing each other making space for each other in conversations. And they did it so deliberately that Obama actually started to realize, oh, I see something that's happening here. And it changed the culture as a result. But it was the power of them all working together. So that 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 power is really important if you can if you can find it. Thank you, Melinda. I see that Ross has a question, so I'll hand it to you, Ross. Yeah. So I guess a question I have just, you know, theoretically, if, you know, today you were to start a company not directly related to DEI, maybe it's a B2B SaaS company, what would you do to create a sort of foundation of DEI in that culture? Maybe it's tactical or strategic, whatever comes to mind first. Yeah. I would, if you're still putting together the founding team, put together the founding team that is diverse. And sometimes it takes a little bit more time because again, our our networks um, sometimes look a lot like us. And so we have to expand our networks. We have to maybe take a little more time to to find co-founders. And and, um, so that is one. Second is to build it into your values from the beginning, your developed values. Sometimes uh, startups don't do that right away. That's really important because that helps create the culture and show what's important to the company. Um, so one of those values should be inclusion in some way. It could be empathy, it could be inclusion, it could be equity, whatever that is, but it could be belonging, um, but make sure that inclusion is one of your core values. Then learn together as a team to make sure that you are thinking about inclusion as you're building culture, thinking about each other, building empathy for one another from the beginning because you're building the culture from from scratch. And, and so as you do that together and from the beginning, it's going to be easier to scale that. Yeah. Th- those would be, th- those would be the, the first three things that I would say you should start doing. And then as you continue to grow, you want to 
continue to, to build upon that and develop some learning because there's only so much knowledge that, that each of us has. We have to kind of look for outside resources to continue our learning journey. Thank you, Melinda. Go ahead, Rob. You referenced a couple times kind of the gap between good intentions and success for organizations on allyship. And you also referenced kind of goals and accountability as being things that are really helpful tools for kind of bridging that gap. I wonder from an organizational standpoint, particularly like a growth organization, right? That's trying to put out a million fires at a time, like a startup or like us at High Innovation. Are there any examples that you could point us to that you've seen in your experience of like, what is a good, strong, credible public commitment look like? where we can put out a goal out there either publicly with our team or even publicly to the world and hold ourselves accountable to getting over the gap. Anything that you've seen uh, from partner organizations or folks you've worked with? Yeah, I would um, look at developing goals around diversity, around equity, and around inclusion, all three of those, and really tangible goals. Make them stretch goals, but not so stretch that you're not going to achieve them or you're going to get, you know, so you want to get close to those goals and, and make them, you know, you might have a, a three or a five-year goal and then incremental goals to get there so that you're really, and then develop the strategy to make sure that you're achieving them, right? It's more than just setting out goals. Um, so, you know, that's representation. Diversity is representation. So looking at making sure that you're representative of the communities that you're serving. The tech industry is extremely lacking representation. So don't use that as your benchmark, <laughs> right? You want to use the world as your benchmark. And that might mean you need to measure first and, and then develop some goals around representation. Make sure that you, often companies, when they're talking and working on representation, will pick one or two identities. That doesn't really work. So rather than picking gender, for example, pick gender, race, ethnicity, disability, and really work on all of that together, sexual orientation and so on, and work on all of that at the same time. Much easier to do than to pick off one at a time. And when you pick off one at a time too, you're not recognizing intersectionality that that people can have more than one aspect of identity. You know, people somebody can be a woman and and Latina as well, right? So um and have a disability and be from the LGBTQIA plus community. So really work on representation across board all at once. And then inclusion, how are you what is your goal around inclusion? Are you striving to, in this again, you can measure this, right? You can have an inclusion survey and see where you are right now and then work on one or two of the indicators that you're seeing, whether that is increasing your engagement numbers for people with underrepresented identities or that is decreasing your turnover. Or, you know, there are lots of different ways that you can, I would, I would encourage you to have an inclusion survey and then pick one or two that you really want to focus on. And then equity, compensation equity, I should say, is probably a one I'd start with. And then also in promotion equity was the next one that I would start with. And, and that can be really easy to, you know, look at where you are now, and calibrate, recalibrate if needed. And so that could be your first goal is to, you know, within the year, everybody is going to be paid, compensated equitably. And then after that is how are you embedding that into your hiring process from the beginning? So the offer is equitable and then the promotion cycle is equitable as well. So people continue to be compensated equitably. Non-visible diversity. Yeah, I think it's important to design for inclusion. You know, so the studies show that 49% of 
LGBTQIA plus folks do not disclose their identity publicly. Similar stats for people with disabilities. So the you know a good portion of people are not disclosing, and you don't need to in order to you shouldn't need to in order to, to be included. So design your culture for people with disabilities. Design your culture for people of different sexual orientations and gender identities and immigrant status in Netherlands. Yeah, exactly. So design for inclusion and rather than design for the individual identities that you think you might have on your team, because it's the, what you think is not accurate. There will be more people on your team who have hidden disabilities that have um, other forms of exclusion that they're not disclosing. I love that incredible answer. Linda, thank you so much. I've learned a lot. I've been taking notes behind the scenes for myself. Paula, thank you for leading this conversation. So have a great day, everyone. Talk to you. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. We'll share resources and a transcript from this discussion at ally.cc. And please make sure to subscribe to our channel and rate this show. It makes a difference for us. Thank you for being part of our community. And remember... The more we take action, the more we grow as humans and as leaders, and the more we transform our communities. So what action will you take today? Let us know your actions by emailing podcast at changecatalyst.co or reaching out on social media. And Leading with Empathy and Allyship is a show by Change Catalyst where we build inclusive innovation through training, consulting, and events. You can learn more about us at changecatalyst.co. Let's keep building allyship across our communities and around the world. Thank you for listening.